This week's episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 14th of June 2023 at home in Wicklow. And it is an episode that looks largely at the idea of survival, of overcoming, of transcendence, of legacy. It also looks at what should define us, what defines one. Should we care about being defined? Should we care about who is doing the defining? I think, yes, we should. Um, and I also look at the the idea of what doesn't kill us makes us stronger. I have a bit of an issue with that idea, and i tell you why uh, later on in the episode. Uh, I talk a little bit about Tina Turner. I talk a little bit about the Irish singer who just passed away, Christy Dignam, Dignam of Aslan fame. And before I get into any of that, I offer, I have a bit of a take on the recently concluded succession. Uh, I spoke about it a couple of episodes episodes ago, but I had some other thoughts that I hadn't shared that I thought, if you like movies and movie references, um, I, I draw a connection between a very famous other movie family and the, uh, the horrendous Roys from Succession. That you might find interesting so yes that's what's coming up i hope you have time to listen and if you do i hope you enjoy it i will see you around the corner cheers Ooh, not gonna change my mind leaving the dream behind hi my name is dara clear and you're listening to the clear out you're very welcome how are you do you want to take a beat take a moment do you want to catch a breath do you want to go and compose yourself come on pull yourself together (laughs) or pull yourself apart whichever your preference is listen it's it's you you can do what you want can't you with you yeah it's okay I'm waiting. I'm not. I'm not at all concerned here. I'm not gonna be harried or hurried or worried. Just take that breath. Take a long, intentional breath. In through the nose. Out through the mouth. Feels nice. <laughs> Are you all right? Are you? Are you okay? Yeah. When people ask you, how are you? How's it going? <laughs> do you really tell them? Do you tell them the truth? Or do you say, I'm grand. I'm grand. It's such a, it's a great catch-all. A great catch-all phrase that we were very devoted to here in Ireland. Grand. Uh, it can mean so many things. I'm okay. I'm terrible. I'm not good. I'm fine. I'm I'm on the brink of a total breakdown. Uh, I'm really good. Grand. It's a nice avoider. How are you? I'm grand. Can we talk about this? No. I'm grand. It's grand. Let's let it go. It's grand. It's fine. <laughs> anyway, how are you? Are you grand? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. 
I reckon there's always there's always something going on. The internal space, there's always something going on. And all we have all we have are moments. All we have are moments. You might have a day, you might have a week. You can go, no, that was good. That was a good moment. That was a good day. I enjoyed that. And other other stuff takes control of the reins, the internal reins, and reminds you, eh, there's other things that lie here unaddressed, untended, ignored, overlooked, deliberately overlooked. But we always know. That's the simple truth, isn't it? We always know, deep inside. We always know. I'm really avoiding that. I'm not looking at that thing that needs to be looked at. And often it's because it's just too scary. It's too confronting to stare at, to look at, to face up to. It's too confronting to accept that work needs to be done. But typically, typically, work always needs to be done. There's always something to do. And it doesn't have to be something onerous or masochistic. It doesn't have to be something brutal and self-abasing in the spiritual sense. I think I referred to something in that area last week when talking about the zero-sum game of of alcohol for some people. If you're, um, yeah... I'm not going to repeat myself. Go back and listen to last week's episode if you want to hear what I have to say on that. Um, yes. So, here we are. Another week gone. My voice somewhat restored to its normal timbre. And I think the reason for that is we had a little bit of rain over the weekend and it dampened down the pollen. And that has helped. Uh, my my symptoms, my hay fever symptoms, have been less less annoying this week, and long may it continue. I say. Um, there's a foxglove, a foxglove stem, a foxglove. Well, actually, wait, no, two two foxglove stems stalks outside the window here with those lovely purple bells hanging off them. Yeah. Nice, suddenly green growth everywhere. Very nice. Anyway, I was rhapsodizing about the, the Irish summer last week. I'm not going to, as I already said, I'm not going to repeat myself. I'm not going to go there again. But it has been particularly nice. It has been particularly nice. We had the, the opportunity to spend a couple of days in Connemara over the weekend. And my God, it was beautiful. So, so nice. Um, we got to go over and spend some time with some old family friends. And it was lovely. It was really nice. It was a road trip. We brought Pepper the dog. That was fun. She was really well behaved. I was so impressed with her. And uh, we got to swim in the Atlantic Ocean in pristine water. Oh, so, so, so good. And we got to break bread together with old friends. Three generations. The youngest person there was two and a half or two and two thirds perhaps. And we, the oldest person was 
81 heading for 82 and um, that person uh, is living with the effects of Alzheimer's and there's a lot of repetition um, but the family rally round gather around get involved and it's uh, it was nice it was a nice thing to be a part of and to observe and these are these are people I've known since I was a very little child <clears throat> so it was uh, yeah it was lovely really really nice and it's just lovely to get away to the west of Ireland and Connemara itself is particularly special it's got its own energy its own lovely lovely landscape its own lovely flora and fauna and in fact on Monday morning I was out early just doing my morning thing and it was very quiet except for the sound of a couple of cuckoos um, which sounded lovely uh, just coming across the air and on the previous morning at a similar time I saw on a rocky outcrop a hare yes I, and I don't mean a stray hair off a human head a follicle blowing in the wind I mean the animal a hare the larger cousin of the rabbit for all I know that's a misnomer they may not be related at all although it's hard not to think they are but the hare has its own energy its own its own sort of unbeatable wildness it's not it's not um, sort of slaughtered with docility like rabbits tend to be uh, we tend not to anthropomorphize anthro <laughs> I've struggled with that word before haven't I anthropomorph anthropomorphize is that the full word I bet you've made a mess of that but a hair it's just a little bit more distant aloof unknowable and um, yeah I, kind of, I was quite thrilled to see one just hopping along the rocky outcrop with the, the ocean in the near distance so um, fantastic and actually also while I was swimming I saw um, an amazing I don't know what it was just floating in the water like a glowing purple uh, oblong shaped thing maybe f f five inches tall an inch wide or two inches wide but sort of glowing vibrating bright purple I wasn't sure if it was some kind of an enemy or a jellyfish of some kind perhaps but it was very striking and, and you know very tropical in um, you know for Irish waters I would have thought um, I can't imagine the temperature was much more than 14 but it was um, the clarity, the water clarity was just fantastic. So that was lovely. And uh, it was great seeing my daughter um, mixing it up with the other kids, younger, both younger and older kids. And to see my daughter just with this great uh, confidence getting into the, uh, the ocean. She sort of found her feet last year getting into the sea and getting into the river um after a couple of summers of you know drama and stress trying to get into colder water but she has a little wetsuit now and she just bounded in and had to be dragged out of the water she was having such a good time so that was nice that was nice um anyway 
anyway here we are here we are and oh, I was going to say actually before I before I get into the the main thing um, I I realized I had one other thought about the final season of succession and it was brought home to me with the final episode and the latter moments of the final episode um and all i will say this won't really qualify as a spoiler but ken kendall the son uh there's a there's a shot of him just walking wrapped up well in his coat and facing out to to see uh maybe looking over the hudson actually so not really the sea but the way it was shot it just reminded me at the time and i meant to mention it when i was talking about succession a couple of episodes ago um i'm referring to the 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 hbo series succession that's been a you know a cultural phenomenon um in case you don't know what i'm talking about but um that final scene of kendall reminded me of al pacino playing michael corleone in the the godfather 2 when he's on lake tahoe um and it was very evocative of that, just the, the colour palette that was used. And it was only afterwards I was thinking, oh, yeah, okay. So if the Corleones were meant to be a, what, a flip, flipping the, the idyllic American family on its head, um, you know, the immigrant gangsters who want to go legitimate but are up to their armpits in blood um but Pacino's Michael Corleone he's kind of in on the hypocrisy he's in on the joke um and indeed articulates as much in the famous scene at the start of Godfather 2 where he's sort of trying to negotiate terms with a very um self-satisfied politician who does come to a sticky end later in the movie but um Pacino's like, yeah, we're, we're part of the same thing here, you and I. Um, but in any case, you know, the, the Corleone is that kind of epic, that saga of trying to escape the, you know, the the the, the blood, the blood-soaked genesis of their of their line, of their family, uh, of their fortune, trying to legitimize um and coming undone in very shakespearean or even kind of greek tragic ways um universal age-old tragedies befalling the family brother against brother father um men blinded by ambition vanity arrogance certitude determination resolution and when I saw Kendall at the end of uh, Succession, I just thought, oh, okay, okay. So maybe this is, you know, this is the other representative, um, you know, tragic or doomed or ill-starred American family. And again, you have the, the immigrant, the sort of the, the, the venal, amoral immigrant patriarch 
um, you know, in the in the in the Brian Cox character uh, at the head of the the Roy family, um, and then the the children trying to live up to the legacy, um, but they don't they don't really have a Michael Corleone. They don't have that grim, uh, determined resolution, um, the ruthless resolution that Michael Corleone. Um, had so you know that was so well captured by Al Pacino um, in those early you know in the early part of his career when he was still capable of being very still and very quiet um, and then the you know <laughs> the re the reborn Al Pacino in his later career got so noisy and shouty and demonstrative uh, but there's no one I don't think he's ever been more chilling than as Michael Corleone in uh, The Godfather Part Two a very very sinister dark character um and all the more so because we know where he's come from but um that's really that's all that's all i'm offering i'm just offering that maybe the roys in succession um they're the they're the equivalent of the corleones and maybe i don't know if if kendall is michael and maybe shiv is sunny and um Roman is Fredo, the the crying one, um, the one whose ineptitude reduces him to tears, or whose tears reduce him to ineptitude, one or the other. Uh, but yeah, so there you go. That's uh, that's my take. That's my take. Um, it's another family epic, another family saga for the ages, um, and corruption of a very different kind. You know, gangsterism of a very different kind, venality and criminality and amorality of a very different kind to what we saw in um, the God, particularly the first two Godfather movies. Uh, although maybe the Godfather three would be um, an interesting link, um, dealing as it does with the, the crime syndicate's connection to the church and the power of the of the of the Catholic Church. You know, the large. Um, you know the, the large and deified institution, and in a way, maybe that's a that's a meeting point with the with the institutions that the the Roy family mix with in succession, particularly um, the occupancy of the the White House and and that kind of thing. Anyway, okay, so there you go. That's that's just something I wanted. I felt I wanted to return to that because I thought, yeah, maybe I feel that's that's a that's a an interesting um, an interesting lens through which to view succession. And as I say, inspired by that final scene, and in my in my opinion, its similarity tonally and particularly the the, the color palette. The energy of it, the the, the framing, um, uh, certain scenes at the end of The Godfather Two, um, which must be they must be they must be fifty years apart. Those mood, those uh, those stories. Anyway, you can check it out for yourself and see what you think. So, um, I did mean to talk briefly, or at least just mention the other week. Um, address share thoughts on tina turner's passing um and if you go back to the start of last year on the podcast i had an episode where 
I spoke about watching the Tina documentary that was out last year or at the end of the previous year and how much I enjoyed it and how um, I really enjoyed watching it having just been kind of immersed in a very tragic story in Ireland where a young woman, a teacher, was, was murdered while she was out jogging and there was a real outcry about you know male violence against women in Ireland and you know a lot of people sharing a lot of opinions and sharing a lot of emotional opinions and I, I dedicated an episode to um, just kind of offer my take on the complexity of those kind of dynamics and how men are viewed and male violence and if you, you can go back and find that episode um, it was in January of, of last year um, because I, I felt there was a lack of nuance being brought into the discussion which is which is always the case when people are emotional it's very hard to remain calm and considered um, and open to the uh, the many facets of a particular um, conflict are uh, you know are, are something that has has caused so much pain and distress um, but in the context of that episode of the podcast I was talking about how I enjoyed coming to watch the Tina uh, Turner documentary which is simply called Tina if I recall correctly and which did cover that ground of Tina Turner escaping her very abusive physically abusive uh, marriage to Ike Turner and uh, as far as I'm concerned it's, it's a huge part of the Tina Turner story um, it's not the most important part it's not what defines her um, but it does partially define her and it was interesting I was listening to a podcast um, I came across well came across I was aware of this pod, podcast but I chose to uh, to listen to a few episodes just over the last week and I've been really enjoying it and it's simply called 60 Songs That Explain the 90s and the presenter is an American journalist whose name is Rob Harvilla and he does these really nicely produced podcasts um, an hour to an hour and 20 minutes long dedicated to one particular song from the 1990s that had a special um, you know a, a special significance culturally and a kind of a cultural resonance and you know across all genres of music and he kind of constructs a really nice show peppered with his own kind of anecdotes um sometimes things that's you know do not appear to be related but he kind of threads it all together and a lot of stuff from his own life he's quite self-deprecating um and usually then he has a as, as seems to have a well the, each episode i listen to he has an interview with someone who for whom that particular song had a significance um, so you get a, and you get a kind of a history of the song, the recording, where the artist was at that moment, what the significance was to their career, all that kind of stuff. It's really yeah, it's it's a nice little show, and um, you know, there's a lot of songs there that I am not familiar with, and a, a lot that I am, um, and maybe I don't know what age you'd have to be to appreciate. I mean, if you like music, <laughs> that should be enough. That should be enough of a qualifier um you know to, to to gain entry to that world but um very enjoyable regardless and uh even if you don't know the song it's it's uh you know it's educational in any case 
I was listening to an episode that they did on Sinead O'Connor's Nothing Compares to You, which was her version of a Prince song, which uh, briefly took over the world in 1990. Uh, something that uh, I certainly felt um, very proud of as an Irish person. Kind of, you know, wow, isn't this great? Sinead's taken it all and she's brilliant and she's amazing. Um, and... You know, you couldn't have a podcast episode like the one I listened to if she hadn't been as as successful in America. Uh, and a female journalist came on as the guest at the end. I've forgotten her name. She writes for The New Yorker, I think. And she had written about Sinead O'Connor and she was a, you know, a self-confessed um, Sinead O'Connor fan as well as a music critic. And she said something at the end and she referred to Tina Turner and basically she was kind of saying I hope that you know when people talk about Sinead O'Connor that it's it's not like the Tina documentary where so much was focused on her uh, abusive relationship to Ike Turner and her sort of survival uh, of that uh, really horrendous relationship um, I hope she'll be remembered just for her music and you know, for being a you know a music icon and you know i thought look fair enough that's a that's a fair point um and i don't know if it's you know if there's, if there's any relevance to that coming from a female perspective or not but i was thinking about it afterwards and i thought maybe you know, maybe Tina, not maybe, I think a huge part of Tina Turner's story is that she survived that marriage, that she came out of that marriage and she thrived. Um, and certainly it was clear and the, the documentary was very clear um, in showing that Tina Turner really, very soon after leaving that relationship and you know, forging her own kind of path. She was really reluctant um, to talk about Ike Turner, really reluctant to talk about the marriage and was very clear that that, that she did not want to do that um, and said it again and again in interviews at the time. Um, and I think eventually she did just transcend that and had a, a very dominant period uh, in music in the in the 80s particularly um and maybe into the you know maybe into the sort of mid to late 90s as well um yeah anyway um i was just kind of thinking well i don't know i mean i i think the idea of i think the idea of survival is really powerful um and i think it it really does inform a person's uh, outlook, their character, and maybe and maybe it is is a, an important part of somebody's legacy. Um, and you know, in in that context, the context of sort of of, of legacy, of being remembered. Um, when I was thinking about that idea and thinking, well, you know, Tina Turner, 
I think, um, you know, her, her, her ascent from hell um, in terms of that marriage, in terms of the abusiveness, the nastiness, the vindictiveness, you know, the, the, you know, the physical violence, um, the sexual violence, um, that is, I, I mean, I, I always found that a very inspiring part of her story. Um, and I don't know how much I knew about that. And if I, if I only found out about it when I saw Angela Bassett, portray her in the movie what's love got to do with it with uh, Lawrence Fishburne as uh, Ike Turner two really terrific performances um I can't remember when that movie came out it must have been mid 90s um but I really only knew of Tina Turner first in the you know in her kind of private dancer iteration and you know that song what's love got to do with it and the al green cover let's stay together um like those were the songs so i was like oh yeah tina turner you know <laughs> i just thought that's how she arrived at that stage of her career i had no idea about the earlier stuff um uh you know kind of the is it river deep mountain high um and like that footage you go back and see the footage when she was with ike turner and she was just a phenomenal performer phenomenal and I don't think you know you couldn't have Beyonce if you hadn't had Tina Turner like there's such similarity in the the kind of the stage presence the energy the moves uh which Beyonce I think has acknowledged um in you know you can go and find a clip of Beyonce doing a Tina Turner number um, maybe and it is that one is it, is it River Deep am I, am I misnaming that song sorry I should have looked this stuff up beforehand I apologise um, you know Proud Mary is that the same song <laughs> I'm an idiot I apologise uh, but Beyonce doing Proud Mary in front of Tina Turner and you know kind of a very esteemed audience uh, I still much prefer the, the Tina Turner version um yeah i don't know it's like I, I sometimes struggle with those cover versions by other super successful um music performers um like beyonce just give me give me her stuff her doing her own stuff i'm like yeah bring it on um but there was only one tina as far as i'm concerned um but yeah the, the, the to go back to this idea then of survival of transcendence of of i suppose of rebirth um and like last week i was talking about maybe the, the idea of like retreating and uh, you know escape so retreat and escape are two different kind of two different ideas because maybe even though i maybe i in, incorporated them last week you know the idea of escaping a particularly bad situation and overcoming it, there is, I think that, that implies ascent. And the word I used a moment ago, transcendence. And they're stories that we really like. Um, and here in Ireland, just in the last uh, day or so, um, a beloved 
singer, a beloved Dublin singer, passed away at the age of 63 uh, from cancer. His name was Christy Dignam, or Dignam, uh, depending on your preference for the pronunciation. And he was the lead singer of a group called Aslan, which um, had a real moment in, in Ireland in the, in the 80s. And Christy Dignam had a... He had a, a battle, a long battle with, uh, with addiction and heroin addiction. Um, but he kind of came out the other side of that and he was a very nice guy and seemed to be very highly thought of and highly regarded and was really a bit of a, uh, like a, well, that's how, how I would perceive it. He was kind of like a folk hero um, amongst kind of working class Dublin people because that's where he came from. He came from a part of Dublin called Finglas and he was, yeah, he was a, he was a proud representative of that community uh, and indeed I saw just a, a one sentence tribute on online today that just simply said you know goodbye angel of the north side uh, so Dublin uh, historically politically socially is divided along um, north south lines um, and broadly speaking um, but with with very obvious uh, exceptions uh, the north side would be would have been considered sort of working class and I don't want to say impoverished because that paints a very particular picture but less well off than the affluent south side and there are very different accents and uh, vibes uh, between those communities but you find echoes on either side of that north south divide and the, 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 the dividing line is conveniently the river Livy Livy? Livy? <laughs> the river Liffey, uh, which is the river that flows through Dublin to the sea, um, you know, from from west to east. And uh, yeah, north of the river, that's the north side, baby. And south of the river, that's the south side. Have another high now. Um, but there you go. And so look, at, like, I mean, my family, uh, southsiders, all southsiders. Um, and so, yeah, there's always a bit of, uh, you know, there's always a bit of banter, a bit of friendly, what? Friendly ribbing. Um, my parents have some friends, good friends, great friends from the north side. And it's always like, ah, north siders. Anyway, Christy Dignam did his addiction and escaping addiction or recovering, being a recovering addict. Is that what defined him? No, he was a good guy. I think that's what defined him. He was a good guy and he was a good and he was a great interpreter of song. And there was a real gentleness and vulnerability to him. That's how I think of him as a as a performer, as a person, as a singer, that stage presence. There was a yeah, a vulnerability. And he he was one of those singers who seemed to go on the journey with the song and be led by the song rather than driving the song. Um, and sort of surrendered himself and there's a vulnerability to surrender isn't there um, now Tina Turner different different kind of energy completely is she defined by that by the, the, the you know, escaping the marriage escaping the abuse starting from scratch restarting from scratch and redefining herself and owning herself and becoming this you know, phenomenal solo act. Um, you know, regardless of whether you care for her music, and for me, there's a window, uh, the one I referred to earlier, um, and after that, I was less interested. But 
you go back and see footage of Tina anytime through 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s and my God, you've just got to go unbelievable, amazing. Um, such a, I don't know, such a, a, a vibrancy and an energy, um, you know, and, and power and strength. And I think that's, like that's to me what I think is beautiful about Tina Turner um, was that the you know the power the joy the strength that she carried in herself uh, and that is what I saw as the triumph and then to ally that to her natural gifts as a singer and as a dancer um, it was just a, a brilliant a brilliant package I, I found her almost impossible not to like um yeah anyway so that to stay with the idea then of 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 survival of of legacy of of being defined by what you've overcome being defined by what you've escaped being defined by what you've transcended I don't know who's doing the defining and who has the right to define you. I believe that power really rests with you. It's up to any one person to set terms for themselves. Um, You are your own creation if you want. Now I'm not, you know, you don't have to take that so literally. It's not about actual reinvention, but I think, I think, I think for a lot of people, um, we can get caught up in the idea of comparison. We can get caught up in the idea of what we see as the model of happiness, the model of success, the model of inspiration, the model of the model of transcendence and we can fall into that trap of going that's what I should be or that's the path I should take and um, or we can get caught up in you know what society presents to us and goes this is the model maybe maybe that's more that's more maybe that's a more accurate frame uh, for this conversation um and if we don't fit that shape society sort of looks at us in a perplexed way and we have to sort of make a decision well am i going to change my shape to fit what they expect or am i going to go it's okay um i might not have the the embrace of of society I i might i might not have that comfort of being approved of or understood and that is a comfort when you're approved of and when you're understood that's comforting that's calming that's reassuring um and that's great if what you are doing and how you're living is close to or a product of the authentic you whatever that might be um but if it's not, then I believe that creates a tension um, because there's 
there's a performative aspect to that and there's a satisfying of something that's farther from who you actually are or what you're actually striving for um and so that's why i think if you can find that clarity of of thought around yourself and around defining yourself if you care to define yourself at all because what does that actually achieve and who are you defining yourself for um i think there's great power in in not in simply not caring in not worry in not being worried about how you're perceived or how you're understood or how you're categorized but that takes i do i I, you know i believe that takes a lot of strength that takes a lot of um self-assurance and and self-belief and it takes a, a healthy disregard for the opinions of others um but then you also want to have some opinions that are meaningful to you because because <laughs> otherwise you're not really you're not really taking part you're not really part of an exchange i mean i spoke about that a few weeks ago with the you know the the great sort of human exchange like the, the the magic of that experience of that energetic soulful exchange with somebody else with a friend with a a loved one with someone close to you the opening up and the stepping into each other's into each other's kind of spaces um to kind of go i see i understand that's uh, there's a richness there that i that I love when it happens um, yeah but um, I think I think when we talk about people like Tina Turner and Christy Dignam there's a there is a there is a a tendency you know it's very natural after people have died because people are superstitious and they don't want to speak ill of the dead and we can romanticize we can romanticize narratives we can romanticize life stories we can romanticize people and oversimplify um and sort of um smooth out the edges and i'm not saying this with any desire to to find fault with or reason to bicker about the uh you know tina turner or christy dignam um or in fact, uh, you know, there's other people who died uh, this week as well. The great Cormac McCarthy, the great American novelist. Um, I've only ever, gosh, I've only ever read a couple of his books. But he's a, a very distinctive voice. Um, and his his prose style, that kind of terse, sparse, what I would think of as very masculine writing. Um gave itself to a very a very a very lean style of storytelling that was all that was all kind of sinew um you know sinew and and, and tension and direct engagement with life I felt there was no flab um in a Cormac McCarthy story or a Cormac McCarthy character um and I, I really I really liked his characters and i feel i feel spurred now to to read other books of his that i haven't 
Um, and maybe maybe writers maybe writers are not romanticized in quite the same way as performers um because performers often live in the you know in, in a visual medium um even though you know in the case of Tina Turner and Chrissy Dignam we were listening to their music um who else died Treat Williams the American actor who just a face I knew and not someone whose films I'd actually see, I'd, I'd actually seen a lot of um I mostly remembered him from um from Once Upon a Time in America the the um Sergio Leone gangster movie with uh, James De Niro and, and James Woods um amongst other people a young Jennifer Connelly in that um played later in the movie as an older woman by uh, Elizabeth McGovern. Um, but this, that movie is what, early 80s? N- not entirely successful. But Treat Williams does have a, you know, an appearance in that. I think is he a union leader who falls foul of, of the, uh, the, the, the gangsters. Um, yeah, Silvio Berlusconi also died. The, uh, is he, is he the textbook corrupt politician? I don't know. The uh, former Italian prime minister and high-ranking and highly corrupt football uh, executive. A very dodgy head. And when I was teaching English um, at any time over the last um, 15 years or so, any time I met Italian students, they'd always hang their heads <laughs> in shame at the mention of Berlusconi, um, which uh, I always quite enjoyed. They were, yeah, we don't like him either. Anyway, what I was, what I was thinking of, and again, we're still in this area of, of kind of survival and legacy and overcoming. Um, and, you know, when I think about legacy, again, for a performer and a songwriter or a writer like Cormac McCarthy, uh, an actor like Treat Williams, um, one of his movies which I've never seen and I want to is Sidney Lumet's uh, is it Prince of the City sort of a, a cop thriller um, I want to, I do want to see that um, I suppose when you're a performer you know there's a legacy there in your work or a writer an artist you know, you, you know your paintings your novels you know, your poetry whatever it might be that's the legacy um, but otherwise I think if you're just a normal punter <laughs> <laughs> you're just a normal a normal civilian I think legacy is it's it's a very sort of vain area to to veer into you know what will my legacy be um, what will people say about me when I'm dead um, I've been I've been working with a guy who has a completely unsentimental attitude to death I've never met someone who cares less <laughs> about what happens afterwards he's like sure you're dead that's it done because I think I said oh, I thought the funeral scene in um, whatever episode of the last season of Succession uh, whatever episode that was, I was like the, the, the funeral was, was quite good and he said ah I'm not really moved by any of that stuff sure once you're dead you're dead done um, and, and, and it's come up a couple of times I've uh, yeah I've never met anyone so unromantic or uh, uninterested in, in, in you know in 
in the aftermath, whatever it might, whatever it might be, um, I, I find it quite refreshing actually to to encounter that that attitude. Um, but yeah, I suppose. Uh, yeah, so yeah, legacy. That's all I'll say about legacy. I'm just like, yeah, I mean, you know, what, what, what's the most you could hope for that people don't have anything bad to say about you? Um, I'm also a little bit sure who cares. Who cares? You know, you, you, when you're gone, you're gone. And sure, what does it matter? You know, like what matters now? It's like it's, it's you know, how the living are living with you. <laughs> Not how the living live without you. It's how they live with you and what they feel about you now. I mean, that's that's far more pertinent, isn't it? Um, But yeah, I was thinking also about the, the phrase, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger and you know that can sit alongside this idea of survival surviving something transcending escaping being able to move on after something very difficult very challenging very traumatic and um you know that that it's 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 a cliche whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger um and I sort of feel bullshit. <laughs> I sort I sort of feel no, not really. Not really because sometimes the things that don't kill you leave you scarred for life. Sometimes the things that don't kill you leave you feeling embattled forever. Sometimes the things that don't kill you are like a millstone around your neck for the rest of your life. And sometimes the things that don't kill you simply wear you down over time, over years. The things that don't kill you wear you down until you're a nub, until you're a stump, until you're not even there. And... I think, and I'm saying this in absolute honesty, I think like social deprivation, economic exclusion, educational exclusion, as well as personal trauma and familial trauma, generational trauma, um, that experience wears people down. And no, it doesn't kill you. It doesn't kill those people. It doesn't kill people from, you know, the neglected areas of society, the the underprivileged, the disenfranchised, the shut out, the the shat upon, the put down upon. It doesn't kill them, but what it does is it it eradicates their vibrancy, their joy their confidence their faith um and again i you know i'm not saying that i'm not trying to go you can't find expressions of vibrancy or faith or strength or confidence in communities that have been put down upon of course there is something that emerges something very vibrant and strong can emerge and does emerge in those communities all around the world but in a more kind of general sense, the 
those challenges of of, of just of, of having to struggle constantly of never getting that break of never breaking through and not having to to worry about you know the next bill to be paid or whatever it might be um and seeing it sort of through generation after generation it doesn't kill you but i really question the idea that it makes you stronger it might make you angrier it might make you more bitter it might make you more cynical more jaded more apathetic um it might simply swallow up your heart and your your joie de vivre your enjoyment of life um so yeah i think um you know you can take the exceptional stories and go look what she did look what he did isn't she amazing isn't he amazing but for many many people it's uh, you know they don't get to transcend or to escape they just get to be worn down and they survive and that's a very different type of survival and i remember i used to say that kind of uh, in in a very flippant way not not cynically but it's just an easy answer how are you doing surviving surviving i'm surviving i'm surviving and you know in the context of a of a wellness discussion or a mental health discussion you know i don't want to just be surviving i want to be thriving now my model of wellness is i don't need to be thriving all the time sometimes i would like to thrive and i hope that that period of thriving will sustain me through a period of not thriving and my wellness model doesn't get much more simple than that really (laughs) just let me thrive a little intermittently but regularly is that if if intermittent and regular aren't contradictions in terms um, a little bit of regular but not constant thriving so it sustains me I think that's I think that's very realistic uh, or if not realistic a very reasonable uh, wellness aspiration and further to that what what qualifies as a little bit of thriving and i was i was thinking about this earlier and i'm going to come back to this idea of joyfulness that that joy that i think was very apparent very evident in tina turner when she was performing and when she was well when she was comfortable in an interview and that that kind of big smile broke out on her face and just her her vitality and her appetite for life was so sort of there um and i think that you know we, we talk a lot about happiness i want to be happy um but maybe joyful is more appropriate can you be joyful can you take joy from life can you take joy from this moment 
And you see, I think if you can take joy from enough moments, they sort of add up, like joining the dots. And suddenly there's something very sustainable there. And even if you can take joy from a day or two days or a week, have a look at that. What made it joyful? Where were you able to find joy? Um, I think I, I think <laughs> I worked. I worked with a joy years ago in a in a kids show, a theatre and education show, and um, yeah, she was a tricky character, and we did not. It would be an exaggeration to say we got along well. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I've kind of, um, I've sort of smuggled in a dad joke in, in, in there. Uh, that's not the kind of joy I was looking for. Um, but, yeah, I think, and again, I'm saying this with absolute seriousness. If you are unable to take any joy from life, you're in deep, deep trouble. I mean, really, um, seek, seek help, seek answers. Um, I'm not talking about dancing down the street like you're leading a carnival. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about loudly greeting everyone with massive handshakes and big smiles your where you find joy can be your own private thing it can be small it doesn't have to be big it doesn't have to be overt it doesn't have to be performed it doesn't have to be witnessed for god's sake but if you can't take joy from life you're you're spending all your energy you're spending your life force without anything restoring it um and that's a real tragedy that's a really that's a really sad thing and I really hope I truly hope you're not in that situation <laughs> um and if you are I don't know I like I said you um you're you know you're you're, you're living a deprived life in some way and you're depriving yourself in some way or something in you is not permitting the entrance of joy into your life. And you may need help. Um, yeah. I mean, ultimately, and I, I probably don't say it enough considering how often I speak about um, areas of mental health and, and personal wellness. I don't say it enough that, you know, help, professional help is, can be a huge part of the solution. Just to give, um, to help tools be found, to help resources be found, to give you a new frame through which to view the world, through which to view yourself. And that can be, that can be life-changing um, for the better. Certainly, certainly that was my experience when I was in therapy. Um, and I wouldn't, I would never rule out going back to therapy um, I think there are benefits. Well, certainly it suits me. The, you know, I mean, as, as when I, I remember when I was talking to Kiara, my wife, and when I interviewed her, and speaking about how something like music therapy 
um, can be a nice alternative to talk therapies. Um, but as you know, um, as my wife, my wife likes to remind me, uh, I like to talk. <laughs> That's a safe space for me. Let's talk about it. Um, just don't ask me to do anything about it. I, I'm joking there, okay? I'm joking. But um, I don't know. I don't know what the... the like what is the art of living joyfully? Um, I guess Buddhists would argue that you know you'll find joy if you're if you're staying in the moment. Um, you might find sadness as well. Maybe you'll find anger, but you'd have to be very unlucky to not experience joy as well along that road of mindfulness. Um, but I guess. I mean, I, I, I know I did an episode in this area before turning the uh, the joy dial. <laughs> it wasn't a euphemism. Um, but you have to be open to it, I suppose. You have to believe it's possible. You have to believe you deserve it. You have to believe that it's it's not just an offset, that it's a very restorative and energy-giving um thing to have in your life in whatever form that takes um yeah i don't know or is that is that is that incredibly do i, do I sound incredibly patronizing do i sound incredibly um presumptuous or superior when i say that i mean i, I say it to myself i mean anything i'm saying to you i'm saying to myself but I think it's a boring structure to go, well, what I do when I'm in this situation is I try to do this and maybe that's something you could consider doing for yourself. I don't know. It's just just something I found very, you know, very, very beneficial. Um, That's, I'm I'm trying not to come from that place. Um, I'm just saying what I believe, what I, what I perceive in, in others, what I perceive in myself. Um, and yeah, joy, I don't know, it's, it's not for me to define what joy looks like to you, you have to work that out for yourself, um, but I do think, like what's the difference between joy and happiness? Like I'm just thinking, I was like, you know, he lived a joyous life. <laughs> That's the legacy. He was such a joyful guy. <laughs> I mean, I think I'd hate to meet that person. <laughs> he was always happy. He was always happy. No, he wasn't. No one's always happy. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. Um, no, that's not the way. That's not the way forward. I think... Maybe we differentiate hap- differentiate happiness from joy. Happiness is maybe a concept that we conceive of in, in you know in more longitudinal terms, and joy is more a momentary thing. And I suppose my argument, if I'm if I if I'm if I'm to listen to myself, and I have been, um, my argument is the that accepting that joy might be the form of happiness that is more sustainable 
than the concept of oh no there's a there's a, a long form happiness like a, a state a plateau i will reach um that i'll never have to come down from for me uh i just get you know there's alarm bells there's trapdoors all over that one whereas the momentary joy i feel is far more attainable and maybe truer and and it's also i think just to kind of round out the conversation it's also you know be comfortable with joy but also be comfortable with with sadness with with these other human experiences and they're also momentary moment to moment um i think an area that i probably need to look at more is when these things and again we're back in the what doesn't kill you territory that sometimes these things leave you altered and they take a long long time to unfold themselves or to release you from their their effects um and that's um that's a hard road that's a hard road and one that requires a huge amount of a huge amount of patience it requires a huge amount of breathing and continuing and staying with yourself and self-compassion um i think those things are are, are useful at all times um yeah i don't know um yeah look i don't think of of anything else to say um are you a survivor is that a very ominous question it feels very loaded these days i mean earlier i did mean to to, to mention i did mean to mention um when i was talking about surviving and being defined you know you think about the holocaust i think about the holocaust i thought about the holocaust in the context of this conversation and holocaust survivors and that is a very particular legacy that's a very particular thing to be defined by um but that was some you know like you, you know you look at someone like that and you think what did they see what did they experience what did they lose at what cost at what cost did their survival come um and that's a very heavy legacy to carry to be a survivor of that particular tragedy is is tragedy a very naff word to use in the context of the holocaust atrocity um i don't know i think um i'm never i'm never surprised by the uh, the depths of human depravity and cruelty um i think if you were someone who was on the the german side of the holocaust experience if you were a member of the the third reich of the nazi um you know industrial machine i think if you survived that and retained your humanity your faith if you managed to access some form of forgiveness um i mean that's impressive isn't it isn't it i mean i i applaud those people just i mean you know i think anyone who overcomes something like that you know regardless of, you know regardless of which side they were on 
you know, you, well, both parties went through the experience. Um, if you know what I mean, again, I mean, I'm not, I don't think this is, this is the wrong end of the podcast to get into this. And maybe that's a more moral or ethical or philosophical discussion because someone, someone could very fairly argue, no, it's a big difference if you were a Jewish inmate rather than a Nazi jailer. If you were a, an officer in a, a concentration camp, yeah, you were a part of it and that was horrible, but very different to being someone who just missed out and been sent to a gas chamber. Um, I mean, I recognise that. But ultimately, ultimately there's... Hmm. You see, there's, there's, always, there's always a relationship. There's always a bond between oppressor and oppressed. Um, and you know, look, people far more articulate than me have been have dealt with this area um, and looked at it culturally and historically, um, sociologically, psychologically. Um, that's all. That's all I was trying to say. Um, yeah, you know, there's there's never just one party involved, and I think that's a that's probably a mistake of of current thinking there's a lot of my experience my story um and the finger pointed outwards um yeah look i'd probably i'd probably be able to crap on for another 45 minutes if i if i go too deep on that one let's um let's just leave it at that okay but just uh there's always there's always other people there's always other people in the cosmos of pain and trauma and recrimination and legacy and survival that that's really what i believe now these are all little kind of personal solar systems of pain the administering of it or the receiving of it um but no one no one leaves untouched yeah that does that sound very bleak yeah, but it, it doesn't have to. I mean, that's 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 not the point. That's not that's not meant to be the concluding point. No one no one leaves untouched. See, so much, so many things are survivable. That's the truth, and there is no greater survivor than the, the human animal. We have survived so much, and we survive so much, and only you know what you've survived. And I hope, I hope you live with the capacity for joy that's that's where i'm coming from because i think that's the triumph the triumph is to keep your heart in place the triumph is to keep your hope in place the triumph is to succeed in not passing it on to the next generation the triumph is learning the triumph is living with that learning the triumph is letting go the triumph is not necessarily forgetting um, but the triumph is, you know, keeping that ability to face the world, to face outwards from your doorstep and go, I can do this. I can do this today and tomorrow. I can do this tomorrow and I can do it the next day. How about that? That's what I'm going to leave you with today because that feels positive. <laughs> And this is meant to be positive, what I do here. It's meant to be contributing something positive 
to your day, to your moment. Okay, thank you so much for listening, if you stayed with me. Uh, I hope you found something to mull over uh, in this episode. And um, yeah, you can find me out there on social media, if that's your thing. You can send me some love on Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or Twitter. I barely use Twitter, to be honest. You can email me at theclearoutlive at gmail.com. I welcome the interaction. I welcome your response, your commentary. Please rate, share, subscribe, like. And if you want to go even further, you can become a patron of the show using the Patreon link. That's patreon.com forward slash the clear out. Or you can use the supporter link if you want to make a one-off cup of coffee sized donation or a vat of coffee or a coffee farm sized donation. All welcome. All welcome. It's up to you to decide whether it's warranted. Okay, that's it. Get out there. Get out there and survive well. Survive with joy. Survive with an open heart. And I will talk to you next week. All the best. Take care. See ya. Bye.